0: It's my pleasure everybody to introduce you to Professor Caroline Seaman. Uh, Caroline is a professor in the Information Systems Department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and she is interim director of the Center for Women in Technology and her research involves empirical studies of software engineering with particular emphasis on maintenance, organizational structure, communication measurement, cost space development and qualitative research methods. And I know that her focus recently has been a lot on technical debt which is a really important topic. We've touched on that a little bit throughout the term. And I just wanted to say that you're actually more famous, I think in our research community or super famous in our research community for your work on qualitative research methods. And she's blushing right now, but she really is known as the person that brought qualitative research methods into software engineering and transformed a lot the way that we do research in software engineering. And for that, I'm really grateful to you, Caroline. And uh, you've given excellent tutorials on that topic. And I've actually posted a link to one of those on our course website. And uh, I've encouraged the students uh, and the participants in this class to look at those. So for today, uh, we read your paper um, on, uh, what was it called again? The War Stories paper. Um, have it here in front of me revealing actual documentation usage in software maintenance through war stories. And I was fascinated with this paper because, first of all, because of the topic that it covers. So documentation is, of course, a really important topic. We haven't talked about it a great deal, but it fits in our theme today for collaboration, coordination, and and knowledge flow. And also because of the research method uh, of telling war stories, which was not really something that we had talked about so far. So I thought that that would be super cool to include today. So we all read your paper, and uh, the course participants have been very busy over the last couple of days adding some questions, and I shared a link of the questions uh, with you. So we've kind of loosely grouped them, and uh, I thought we would give uh, all of them a chance to ask you uh, some of those questions and to meet you here today. So let me start with, and I said I would cue people in the chat, which I will do. So let me start with Cassie, if that's okay. Um, If you would like to ask your question. So the first few questions that we're gonna ask are about improving documentation. Uh, So related to the topic. So Cassie, are you there today? Yes, I can. Okay, so I'll jump in and ask this one. So Cassie asks, you state an overarching conclusion from this set of findings is that there is a need in industry for more organized ways of making documentation available to maintainers in a painless and flexible way. This was a quote from your paper. And Cassie was wondering, do you have any possible ideas on how to make documentation easily available to maintainers?
1: So, so this is an example of how dated this paper is in terms of technology. So, so you'll notice the date is two thousand seven, which was a lifetime ago. Um, just for comparison, that was before GitHub, was before even Google Drive. Um, so there, there was, there was nothing like that. Um, hyperlinks were still the hot new thing. <laughs> so, um, so really, what I was, what, what we were suggesting was anything, anything to help um, people find documentation. There weren't good search tools, um, so it would be interesting to update that part of this study now where where developers have all kinds of tools and and these tools are widespread. Um, uh, And and I'd be curious if, if maintenance environments like the ones that we studied in 2007, or really 2006 and 2005, If maintenance environments like that are using uh, tools that have come into being since then uh, to manage their documentation um, and how they're using them, and I don't know, but but the fact is that uh, addressing that problem is is much much easier now than it was in 2007, and there are lots of different ways uh, that it could be um, using. I mean, even just using Google Drive would be a huge improvement over what most people, what most folks were doing in 2007.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, all of the social tools have kind of appeared really on, this, on the scene actually in 2007. That was when a lot of them, like Stack Overflow, I think was 2007 as well as GitHub. Um, you know, backing up a little bit before we dig into some of the questions, I just wanted to ask you a little bit, like, how did you actually get into doing qualitative research? Like, what was your introduction to that? I should have, st- I should have opened with that.
1: Um, well, that's a story.
0: <laughs> so, I was a
1: PhD student. Um, I was working with Victor Basili at the University of Maryland. And um, Vic Basili was big and do empirical software engineering. He's kind of the father of empirical software engineering. Um, but empirical software engineering at that time was very quantitative. And so, all of his students were learning um, our quantitative research methods, as was I. Um, and the, but the research question, the research area that I really wanted to look at was um, communication and coordination among people in a software team. Um, so, you know, and what makes communication more efficient or less efficient or um, less effective or more effective. And I was really, really struggling with coming up with metrics for that, ways to measure that quantitatively. And, and I was really struggling with that and Vic was, was struggling with it too. So um, he went off as he often did uh, to be the external uh, thesis committee person for um, somebody, I think it was in Syracuse actually. Um, And he went to the the student's dissertation or defense and he came back all excited and he said, Carolyn, have you ever heard of qualitative methods? And I said, Vic, no, I haven't, what are they? Um, so uh, this, this, the student that he had gone to the defense for was from a business school, um, but was doing things related to software engineering, which was why he was asked to be the external person. So he said, I really don't completely understand it, but look it up and start reading. And so I did. Um, and sort of qualitative methods um, are, are decades, if not more old in other disciplines. So there was a wealth of things to read. Um, if I could get through you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of background in things like sociology and psychology and education research and anthropology, um, which is where this reading came from. So I, I, it was a bit of a job to work through it, but eventually um, I got to the research methods part of it. And um, I thought, yes, this is what I need to study uh, communication and coordination in software teams. So I did, I designed a study. Um, it was mixed methods. Um, I was still in a computer science department. There still needed to be some numbers. So I managed to find some things to uh, to measure, but the data that I collected mostly was qualitative, and um, I sort of taught myself how to code, and how to um, to do the
0: analysis. So that's how it started. Wow and uh, you haven't stopped since. Yeah Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. So in your article uh, Caroline you wrote there are times when official or informal documentation a developer's personal notes emails etc becomes the saving factor when facing a difficult maintenance tasks. Um, Would you say that this is the key value of storytelling? I guess that you could pull that out and uh, what sort of standard uh, would you use to ensure simplicity and clarity of documentation? And what would you use to replace the need for it? Yeah. So
1: um, so yes, I think this is a key value of storytelling. I, I really think that a lot of these really interesting tidbits, especially about people, um, and that, that was a lot of the, um, the findings that we reported in this paper were about the human role in, um, in information gathering and maintenance. Um and I'm not I really don't think we would have gotten a lot of that without having sort of a storytelling framework for for our interviews. So yeah, I think that is a key value. Um, as as in terms of creating a standard to ensure simplicity and clarity and and to sort of to make documentation more clear, which is is a good thing to do, but I'm not sure that would really replace the people part of it. Um, I mean, the big challenge of documentation is you don't really know what information people are going to need, Uh, the future readers of your documentation are going to need, and there's always going to be something that comes up that you just never thought to put in the documentation, and that's where humans come in. Now, you you can reduce that as much as possible, and there there are lots of standards now for writing different types of documentation that attempt to be exhaustive, um, which is why nobody (laughs) stands Nobody follows the standards because they're enormous. And um, the point of them is is to help you put everything possible in the documentation. And nobody has time for that. Um, So documentation standards tend not to be used because they're sort of unrealistic. Um, So so no, I I don't think a standard or a guideline uh, for clarity, maybe. Clarity is important and simplicity. Um, But a lot of the standards sort of uh try to go try to ensure completeness of documentation. And I think that's it, it's it's important to try, but I don't it's a little bit of an unattainable goal. And I don't think you can eliminate the, the future need for having people. Um,
0: yeah. And yeah. Um, a bit related to that, Jory was wondering um, about the another example of a barrier you gave in your paper was the maintenance group who made their documentation largely unavailable to the new group that, you know, taking over the maintenance task. And so Jory was wondering, uh, would you recommend a centralized repository of uh, documentation for teams or departments or some sort of knowledge transfer practice? Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely, Uh, definitely. So this was um, in a context where um, there was a very bad transition of the project from one contractor to another. So this was a large government, US government agency, Um, who did all their software development through contractors, um, which was the norm then and still is as far as I know. Um, And the agency, for whatever reason, very abruptly took the contract away from one contractor and gave it to another. So the first contractor was upset, um, and they did what they could to make it as difficult as possible for the the new contractor to come in. And this is one of the things they did, was they, 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 they kept hold of their documentation. So certainly if there had been a centralized repository um, uh, that the the first contractor had been required to put out their documentation in that repository and if that repository were under the control of the government agency that would have solved this problem um, that was not the case and and this sort of touches on and, and we didn't get enough data to really explore this um, but you know not knowledge is power information is power and some organizations really understand that well. So this is a case where the documentation was sort of weaponized. You know, it was, it was a valuable asset that the first contractor was not willing to give up because they knew it had value. And so they tried to extract a price. It didn't work, but, but that happens sometimes. Um, So I don't, you know, a centralized repository would be great if, if the contractor would have the first contractor would have agreed to that but in this case, I, I think that they would not have. So yeah. this is a little less, less about documentation and more about power, yeah, power and money and and people, right? And people, yeah, yeah. Not about yeah. people.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of a lot of us, when we do research, we kind of assume that humans are rational human beings, you know, rational beings, and that they're going to behave in the best way that they can, you know, in the interest for the project and other people, but. They don't right <laughs> so I think that's one of the cool things about this method right is that you were you were able to pull that out right from using that method yeah uh Jordan uh let's uh let's bring you into the conversation and you can ask your message hi yeah um or question. I, yeah <laughs> I did have a question. Um... It was for for new employees or
1: new maintainers joining organizations. Do you see even more barriers with documentation usage when it seems like connections to the developers or the builders, or through word of mouth, is critical for gathering information? Yes, absolutely. That's a very good observation. Um, yes, it is harder for new people. So, so the um, the study that that this paper describes was an ongoing study, and and we. Um, reported, um, I believe, if I'm remembering right, reported results only from the first site that we did these interviews at, which happened, as I said, was a large government organization who at the time, and still is, uh, has a, a fairly aging workforce. Um, I think it was about five years after this. Um, I was involved in another project, um, basically a knowledge ma- knowledge uh, uh, harvesting project. At this government agency, who who was realizing that the the bulk of their, um, the bulk of their, organizational knowledge was retiring in the first, in the next few years, so so this was definitely an older um, workforce, uh, older group of of maintainers who had been working together for a long time, had been working in the in that organization for a long time, had a lot of contacts, uh, relied a lot on their on um, their personal contacts. And yes, that's a huge barrier then for new people coming in, which makes some of, some of the newer tools, as we mentioned before, the, the searchable repositories that are available now, so much, so much more valuable and so much more important. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting insight.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you, Jordan. Um, we'll pivot a little bit from um, this topic and switch to a little bit about me for documentation today with remote work. And so for that, I'll bring in Alessandra. Yeah, hello. So uh, the documentation seems to be even more important nowadays uh, since we are working remotely and uh, the access to our co-workers as the human source of the information may be difficult. So uh, compared with the convenience of an in-person or shared location. So as you just mentioned, there are guidelines to keep extensive documentation. But how to find this balance? uh, Which practical practical guidelines or reference can be suggested to project teams to follow uh, to build this minimum documentation required for effective uh, information sharing?
1: Yeah. So um, maybe I'm not sure how to answer that. I think it's very organization-specific, and I'm not sure. It's off the top of my head. This is not something I've thought deeply about, but off the top of my head, I, I'm not sure that it's so different um, when people are working remotely, um, because still, it, this was not so much true in 2007. But now, um, you know, paper documentation is not very, not very common. So even if you were sitting in an office next to somebody else, you'd still, you know, you'd you'd walk over to their office and ask them for some sort of piece of documentation, and likely they'd send you a link, or they'd send you an electronic document. Um, I think it's it's far more rare now for somebody to turn around in their office chair and take something off their bookshelf and hand it to you. Um, So that can happen the same way remotely, except instead of walking over to their office, you're shooting them a a message or, or an email or something. Um, but I think documentation, I don't know this for sure, but my assumption would be that documentation is far more likely to be electronic. Um, and and so as long as the, the documentation is electronic, then passing it around um, from one person to another doesn't really matter where those people are physically located. Um, so, you know, the, the electronic, uh, being able to electronically search and retrieve documents is is just as important, and um, you know that those would be the major considerations in either case for for building a, a repository of, of documentation.
0: Great, thanks, uh, thanks, Alessandra, for that question. Very topical, right today. Um, we'll switch a little bit to uh, some of the questions about um, research methods, because there were a lot about uh, the research method that you're using about storytelling, and uh, quite a few of these were about sort of the limitations of the threats, uh, which we've talked about quite a bit in the course. Um, so I'm going to start with Matt to ask uh, his question about, uh, about the research method, the storytelling method. Hi, Yeah, um, I had a question. Um, so your paper kind of compared uh, storytelling methods to structured and semi structured interviews. Um, and I, I saw sort of a similarity to uh, field study methods. And I was wondering how they compare or how storytelling compares that way and how the um, the validity threats line up and could those two methods be are they good candidates for um, triangulation
1: mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's true. Um, you mean um, field studies sort of field observation along with storytelling that those two things together would be a nice uh, a nice mix in terms of triangulation. Is that what your suggestion? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that would be a very nice mix. Um, you know if you have that kind of access, Um, yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned in the, in the paper that we really like to do the storytelling interviews, um, in place, you know, that we, we don't take, we didn't take our interviewees somewhere else to interview them. We interviewed them in the place where they do their work, which means any kind of interview that you do in someone's office or in someone's workplace has an element of observation in it usually, because you're kind of looking around at what they have around them. They often pull what we call props they'll pick up a a book or they'll pick up a picture or they'll show you something on their computer so there's often stuff to look at uh anytime you're interviewing in someone's someone's workplace um so that's a real advantage and I think for storytelling that happens even more because they they will they're telling a story and you know some people who, who really enjoy storytelling, they like to use props and they like to show you stuff and, and bring sort of a dramatic element into it. So they can do that when they're in their own space. So there is a little bit of uh, a flavor of a field observation when you're doing these types of, of interviews in, in place. Um, and if you do them along with, uh, along with observations, um, what you, uh, the stories then often become the backstory to what you observed. Um, I did this a little bit, I didn't call it storytelling back then, but for my dissertation, um, my main data collection was observing meetings, observing code inspection meetings in particular. But what I usually did is I observed a code inspection meeting, and then I had short interviews with um, some of the people that were in the meeting. And what I often got in those follow-up interviews was the backstory, Um, you know, well, this is why so-and-so said this, and -and so-and-so said that, and this is why this seems so important to that person. And it was sort of a little mini storytelling type of interview. although I hadn't really intended it that way, so but it dovetailed really nicely because that really helped me to um, interpret what I was what I was observing. So I think that actually is a very nice combination. I think you're right. You're onto something there. Well, thanks. Um, as far as um, similar validity threats and limitations, that's probably true. I don't know about the Hawthorne effect because I think in storytelling interviews, there's less of a sense that somebody's being studied. Um, because you really give the interviewee complete control over what they tell you. Um, So that sense of being judged or being tested um, is really, really diminished with a storytelling interview, much less than a more structured interview where you're asking specific questions and where a lot of uh, some people in in more structured interviews feel feel judged and feel tested, um, which will um, make them more likely to, um, to change what they're gonna say to, to fit what they think you're looking for. In a storytelling interview, they have no idea what you're looking for, <laughs> which is one advantage.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's super cool, actually, to think about um, to think about it that way. Um, there's also some recent papers actually that question that the Hawthorne effect is a thing. Yeah, which I'll, I'll post some links to those papers in our Cool Reads uh, channel in Slack. Um, but I, but I like the insight that you know that people aren't likely to kind of you know. know, feel that pressure. Um, On the other hand, actually, Ansh and uh, Dave had a couple of follow on questions to that, which I'll sort of fold into one. Um, Ansh was wondering, you know, sort of because storytelling is looking back in time, um, maybe, you know, memories are tainted right over time, or maybe sometimes some aspects of the story are exaggerated or understated when compared to reality. Um, And maybe those issues with the, um, you know, the researcher or the interviewee becoming sort of somehow, you know, uh, emotionally connected, you know, to, to the interviewer, like, do you think any of those introduce threats to this method?
1: Yeah, so, so the reliability in particular, when people are telling stories, you can't assume that what they're telling you is 100% accurate. And so, so you have to go in with that assumption. Um, so storytelling is not a good way to get sort of a, a factual account of some phenomenon that you're trying to study. Um, it's, it's, if that's what you're getting at, if there's some phenomenon, specific phenomenon that happened in the recent past and you want to find out exactly how, what that phenomenon was and how it worked, storytelling is, is not the way to do it. So you really can't, um, can't assume accuracy. So the point of of hearing people's stories is to get insight into what's important to them, um, to to sort of take it up a level, or depending, I'm I'm getting my metaphors mixed up, but you're also sort of digging in a little bit to what's behind the words. So you're looking at um, your interviewees' emotional responses to what they're talking about. Um, You're getting um, overall strategies. In particular, in this case, we were looking for strategies. What, What do people actually do to try to get information? And if that's what we're getting at, we're done. It doesn't really matter that they maybe have some of their facts mixed up, or maybe they're overemphasizing some aspect a little bit, because that just gives us more information, more information about their motivations and and um, their what they feel is important, their priorities. Okay, so so reliability of the data itself um, is not really an issue here. Um, it's really not important because you can't can't um, can't rely on that. But but. What what has to be reliable is your analysis. Okay, so so um, talking about your analysis methods and making sure that they're repeatable, um, that's that's important when you're doing this kind of thing. The other thing, um, researcher bias. Yeah, um, I think you can't get away from researcher bias. I think in pretty much any study, particularly qualitative. Um, you know, like any qualitative study you have to be very careful um and you have to be constantly questioning your own biases. Um, and that's why I say just like you know, you should never swim alone or you should never go out drinking alone. You should never do qualitative <laughs> analysis alone. Same idea. Um, you need to have somebody there who is constantly questioning you and, and you're questioning each other about where your biases are coming in. So that's that's true in this time in this type of study as well.
0: Great, I love that. I'm going to remember that one. (laughs) Um, So one more question maybe about uh, threats. Um, I'll invite Dylan to ask uh, his question. And you're muted. Yeah,
1: hi. Um, Yeah, on a similar vein there, uh, you mentioned that some participants were much more comfortable slash able to tell their stories compared to others, um, which presumably presumably, uh, resulted in a bit more storytelling data to pull from from them. I was wondering if this could skew the coded data and results to reflect the voices of who are the voices of those who are more able because there was more data or um, or is there a way that you can control for this? Yeah I think that's that's a really good insight and what we didn't say in the paper but it was definitely true is there was a very strong correlation between those interviewees who felt more comfortable in the storytelling paradigm and those whose first language was english um, so we did not control for that and probably should have that was not something we thought a whole lot about in 2007 i'm sorry to say um, but that is definitely something that that should be as far as controlling for it um you know, It's not like a quantitative thing where you can, you can um, apply statistical methods to, to control for something like that. But it is something you constantly have to be uh, questioning the data about. So, um, so the way to, one way to do that, there are several ways to do that, but one is um, when you are at the point where you're formulating a result. So if, if you're doing a grounded theory type of analysis, when you get to selective coding and you're deciding what are the most important categories, you look at the diversity of the data underneath those categories and those those um, major propositions that you're putting forth, and you see where does that data come from? Is it come strictly from this group of super uh, super great English speaking um, storytellers, or or is there some other data even from the other um, interviewees who who uh, weren't as able uh, to express themselves? So you so you kind of have to make sure that, that the data underlying anything you put forward as, as a result of the study um, has a, a diverse basis of, of uh, data that supports it. Um, and uh, yeah, otherwise it's it's not a finding of your study, it's a finding of some subset of your interviewees. So yeah, being being aware of that and being um, honest about it is, is important. That's a really good point. Um, Yes, because, yeah, there was definitely variation in how, how, um, how easy it was for people to talk in stories. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Mm -hmm. Great, great question, Dylan. Thanks for that. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll move to um, a couple of questions about challenges that you had with uh, analyzing the data. And I'll invite Jonathan Bezo um, to jump in.
1: Uh, Hi. Um, so my question was, uh, in your paper, you mentioned that one of the limitations of the storytelling approach is that um, the
0: interviews have to be transcribed verbatim, and that was expensive. Um, do you think that with the advance of text-to-speech algorithms in the last 13 years
1: since since this paper, that, that since they became more accurate and capable, that that makes this approach more viable today than it was in 2007? I, I think it is, yeah. Um... I haven't I haven't used technology to transcribe um, interviews in any of my own studies, um, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. I haven't tried it yet because so I don't quite trust it. Um, I'll tell you I'll tell you a story <laughs> from this study. Actually, uh, for some of the data from this study, we actually um, used a paid transcription service. Um, so it wasn't technology; it was a person uh, who we sent off the recordings to, and they sent us back a, a text document. So um, there was one or two of the interviews um, that were, I guess it was just one of them, that a, a recurring topic was version control. So the interviewee was telling these stories about the how they were doing version control and, and the problems that occurred with the way they were doing version control, meaning how they controlled different versions of the software. Um, but our transcriptionist w- was not a software developer, was not a software engineer. And everywhere where the term version control should have appeared in the transcript, it was instead virgin control, which caused us a lot of, we we were wondering what on earth they thought we were talking about. (laughs) So so, um, I suspect uh, errors like that would be maybe even more common when you're using technology to transcribe. so it just it, the lesson is you can't rely on that uh, 100% You still have to read through the transcript and, and catch catch things like that. That was an obvious one because <laughs> we knew we weren't talking about anything having to do with virgins in these um, in these interviews. So that was easy to catch. but but other um, other errors like that would be a lot more subtle and, and could slip through. So So there are some validity threats. Around transcribing um, by anybody other than the people who did the interviews, so but the efficiency gain is huge. It's huge. So and as as the technology gets better, that the that validity threat reduces. Yes.
0: Great, thank you, uh, Jonathan, for that question. Um, all right. So next uh, question. I'm gonna jump. To more about using this method and uh, I'm going to invite Rohit uh, Pudari to ask this question because I'm actually super curious about what the answer is to this because I never would have thought of it. Rohit are you there?
1: Yeah uh, so my question was uh, the storytelling approach described in the paper is used on interviews can it be used for service as well and what factors would be a challenge if we try doing it? Yeah so um Yes, you could. Um, so I guess the way you would do that is you would, there would be a survey question that asks people to tell a story and ask them to either write the story, I guess, or record it, record them telling the story. Um, and yes, I guess you could do that. The, the disadvantage is then you're not there to ask follow-up questions and ask probes to get more information. Um, and if you're asking people to write, write it, they might write less and write um, less detail. That might be true with recording as well. So you get you get more detail if you're there to probe them to get more out of them, and if they don't have to write it down. Um, yeah, I guess I could. I, I've never done that. I've never tried it. I don't, can't think of any studies that have done that. But but it's possible. It's possible. I mean that the advantage of it is you could get a whole lot more data than if you had to do the interviews, you know, one one on one interviews. Um, but it. I would guess the data would not be as rich, and then you'd have the the problem of of analyzing all that data, um, especially when there isn't as much detail. Um, there, there, I would think you would get a lot of data that's difficult to interpret um, if people are telling stories who aren't very good at telling stories or who leave a lot, mm. out a lot of detail. So that might make it hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's I an interesting idea. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, right? Maybe we could use something like TikTok. <laughs> you know for people to share stories or something I'm trying to encourage my students to use TikTok for their project presentations we'll see what happens there um so we're getting near the end of our time sorry we're going a little bit over I hope that's okay with everybody um Derek would you like to uh they're they're laughing about TikTok (laughs) okay TikTok platform is terrible all right I won't force that on you uh Derek would you like to jump in with your question
1: uh yeah um oh quick one on the transcriber thing. Uh, We tried one. It's really good
0: when it's common language. The minute you throw anything technical in there, it just goes off the rails. But it can actually be quite it's it's almost there. It's a helpful tool where you just have to
1: correct it versus writing the whole thing out. Some people love it, some hate it. It's not
0: perfect yet. Thanks for sharing that Derek. And uh, my question was, uh, how difficult is it to get this stuff published in the quantitative journals? Like How often do they
1: just kind of be like, "I don't know what this is. I don't like it." Yeah. So um, I don't think I don't think it's harder than getting other qualitative work to be published. I mean, getting qualitative strict hundred percent qualitative work published is is a bit of a challenge, Um, but it's it's getting easier. It's easier than it was twenty five years ago (laughs) when I did my dissertation. uh, you know, and it—it's what it takes is more people. Yeah. I mean, for—for for a while there, after I started publishing stuff on qualitative stuff, there there just weren't many reviewers who understood anything about qualitative work, um, which meant that I did a lot of reviewing, um, but it, it did—it meant that a lot of papers got rejected, and that's just gradually been getting better as more people as more people are publishing. There are more reviewers available who understand qualitative, and it, it's kind of a a chicken and egg thing but it's it's getting there um as far as stuff about war stories I don't think that it's any more difficult um, um there have been a few other war stories published papers published um since this one I think um I'd have to I'd have to do some googling to to um to confirm that I know there have been some other war story war stories studies done um and I think they've been published so it, it, yeah, it's, it has the same challenges that any sort of, um, especially a field like a qualitative field study would have um, that doesn't have any quantitative element. It's always easier. It still is easier um, to get something published if you've got some numbers in there. So mixed method is, is still, still sort of the, the safest way to go.
0: Yeah. And actually, Nimi was asking, you know, it, 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 you know, what do you think could be the reason for not using this method? And do you think it, do you think it's because it's hard to publish? Or is it because, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to analyze the data or just use it?
1: Well, it's, it's also not appropriate for, for all research questions. Okay, so, um, you know, it's, it's good for uh, you want to study a phenomenon, you want to study it very, very broadly. Um, you don't have a lot of preconceived notions about what you're going to get. And you're looking at a phenomenon that, that has some historical aspect to it that you want to, people to reflect on how this works over time. And, you know, just there's lots of things that you want to study in software engineering that don't fit that model and that it just would not make sense to use war stories on. So, so I don't think war stories are ever going to be... Um, a hugely common type of research method that you'll find in software engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, So the question of whether it's being underutilized, that's hard to say. Um, It's not used much, but maybe it shouldn't be used much. I think it's a really good thing for certain research questions and, and certain stages of research, but it doesn't work for everything.
0: Great, thank you. And um, you know, we're we are at the end of our time. It went so fast. Uh, such a great discussion. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm going to sneak one more in. Rohit just messaged me and said he really wants to know if you know anything about you know challenges of documentation and differences with startups. Have you seen any research uh, with res- with regard to documentation and startups that you could um, not
1: specifically, um, but I actually have a PhD student right now who is studying basically they're studying technical debt in startups and um, not unsurprisingly, often uh, the technical debt in startups is related to a lack of documentation Uh, because documentation, I mean, in general, documentation is is not not high on the priority list of most software engineering organizations. And that is even more true um, of startups and and, um, organizations that are in, in the sort of the context similar to startups, you know, the very fast development times, um, heavy deadlines, uh, market pressure, all that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, so inadequate documentation leads to technical debt, leads to maintenance problems, um, which puts more pressure on maintenance, which leads to even less priority on documentation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it helps that we have, again, the, the stuff that we didn't have in 2007, the um, uh, um, yeah, D- yeah, Dana, I think somebody put in the chat that, yeah. uh, Daniela Damian has a paper on that. I think that's true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's been some stuff on that. I'm not
0: super familiar, yeah.
1: um, with that, um, literature, but I think it's out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Derek will post a, a reference to that in uh, Oracle Reads channel in Slack. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for joining us um, on this Friday afternoon and uh, sharing with us your insights on your paper. Um, before we say thank you to you, did you have anything you wanted to say or anything to add uh, to the discussion before we close out?
1: Thank. Um... I think it's great that you have such a big class <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that wants to study empirical software engineering. No. That's awesome. Oh, they didn't do um, <laughs> <laughs> That's That's quite a treasure. So um, my best to all of you. Um, good luck. Uh, go out there and, and research and discover more stuff. And if, if you think you have a research question that is amenable to war stories, go at it. Have a try. It's a lot of fun. War stories, collecting war stories is a lot of fun.
0: Analyzing them
1: not so much, but collecting them is a lot of fun.
0: So I'm totally sold on it, actually. I want to try it now myself. So you know, I'd heard of the method, but not read a lot about it. So you've inspired me to use it. And perhaps also uh, some of the students in the class will be using it as well. So Caroline, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and answer questions on your paper. And you're very welcome to uh, stay around. Uh, for as long as you'd like. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Take care, everybody.